You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors. You know them and love them. MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. And if you need some help, check out MailChimp's Experts Exchange directory. Uh, 318 Media, where I'm Creative Principal, is a MailChimp expert. Fun fact there. Uh, Sign up for a free MailChimp account at MailChimp.com. Need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. Grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code GRADUATION and save 10% off your purchase. And lastly, there's Creative Market, who sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more, starting at only $2. They give away a new selection of free goods every Monday, today's Monday, and they have got bundle promotions that go on every month. Uh, Their May Big Bundle actually is ending, I think, in a few days now. You can get 91 items worth over $1,400 for just $39. So there's fonts, all kind of great stuff in there. And also... We have a 20% discount code. You might remember we had one back in November of last year, but they've re-upped it. So just use the discount code REVISIONPATH, all one word, and get 20% off your purchase. Actually, I think you can use it on the bundle, so you can actually save a little bit of money there. Uh, Head on over to creativemarket.com. Let me know how that works out. All right, big news, big announcements. Uh, Listen up, Atlanta listeners. Join me at Park Bar in downtown Atlanta on May 22nd at 7 p.m. I'm going to be hanging out there, sort of an informal meetup. I want to meet some listeners and things like that. So if you want to stop by, I'd really love to talk with you. Uh, Park Bar is located downtown. It's across the street from Centennial Olympic Park, 150 Walton Street, Atlanta, Georgia, 30303. Come on through and say, hey, I'd love to meet you. All right, now let's get on with this week's interview. I talked with Roy Milton, who's an art director at Sanders Wingo in Austin, Texas. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Roy Milton. Uh, I'm an art director and designer here at Sanders Wingo Advertising here in Austin, Texas. How'd you get started at Sanders Wingo? I was actually working at a smaller boutique agency here in town, and I'd heard of Sanders Wingo before. When I first moved to Austin, I was in Dallas for about seven or eight years. And looking at agencies that were in Austin, I heard about Sanders Wingo and came across their work. And I was like, man, this is cool. This is an agency that has a multicultural spin and and that does a lot of work in the African-American segment. So I was really excited about just the idea that an agency that was Black-owned and targeted towards reaching minorities and Blacks and advertising was really cool. And then I just worked in the industry, and eventually I got a call from Sanders Shantika Seegers, that is our executive creative director here. She was interested in my work and asked if I'd come in and talk. And I was like, yeah, of course. (laughs) It was really interesting when I looked at the, the Sanders Wingo website, just how many, I mean, I think it's like you have a multicultural crew there which is something that is rarely seen. I mean, I rarely see that at design agencies. I haven't really looked at a a ton of advertising agencies, so I'm not sure if that's par for the course or not. 
but it was good to see that. What sort of things does Sanders Wingo do to kind of help contribute to diversity in advertising? You know, that's a good question. I think, one, because of our founding with Bob Wingo and David Sanders, who were basically two, I guess, uh, catalysts, I guess you can say, who just happened to meet at the right time decades ago in, in advertising, their background and just how different they were as founding fathers was really what set the course for how the agency would be. And so you've got David Sanders, who was basically a white Jewish guy who had a, a very unique background. And then you have Bob Wingo, who was from the Ohio area and black guy in advertising and younger on top of that. I mean, David Sanders started the agency when he was, I want to say he was in his early 50s at the time, which, you know, was very different at that was very madman-esque time, I guess. And these mm -hmm. two characters came together and they wanted to create an agency together. And it was like nothing had ever been done like that before. But when I came here, the thing I love about our culture is that every day there's just conversations about what's going on in society and what's going on in the country and what's going on in the culture of educating people on what it means to be a minority. And those are just casual conversations that take place on a daily basis. A lot of times they're centered around jokes and centered around current events. And we just gather around. You'll see two, three people at a cubicle talking about something that just happened or talking about some sports related thing or, you know, and then there's sometimes deeper discussions about advertising and minorities. So it's just always a topic. And one of the things that I was really shocked about coming here was there's an even balance of blacks who are in the agency, but then you also have whites and we've got Hispanics and, and then we have the El Paso office too, which is mostly Hispanic and white too. So we've really diverse as an agency overall, and then even in the clients that we serve as well. Who are some of the clients that you work with? So our biggest client here in the Austin office is AT&T. And so we handle the African-American and minority segment of advertising for AT&T. And then we also have some more local clients as well. We have Be Sweet Lemonade, who is a young girl founded by Michaela Omer, who she just actually had, um, she just got a deal with Shark Tank, Damon, from Shark Tank, a very inspiring little girl who started Lemonade and very environmental, like Lemonade that is used to really restore the ecosystem for bees. That's just kind of a quick snapshot of what we handle in, in Austin. And then in El Paso, we handle some hospitals and those in the medical industry and medical technology. We've also got some a credit union client in El Paso. We do stuff for Destination El Paso, so for visitors. Bureau, and we just have a really diverse portfolio, I guess you could say, of the work that we do. And because we are diverse, we're able to bring those insights and those our personal experiences as employees too to our work that really help enhances the work that we do for our clients too. Yeah, it really seems like the I don't even want to say the push for diverse because it doesn't seem like this is something that you all are, I guess, actively trying to make happen. It's very organic. It's organic just from the beginning of the agency itself. Diversity is really just in the DNA of Sanders Wingo, which I really like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you sort of have a art background, and this might be kind of an obvious question, but what sorts of opportunities are there for designers kind of in the field of advertising? Because it seems like the two are closely linked when I think about designers that maybe will go to an art school or even designers that are self-taught 
they'll either go to maybe like a, a design agency or they'll work for a company as a designer. But are there any sort of specific opportunities for designers in advertising? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a really good observation because technically I didn't really set out to be in advertising. I wanted to be a designer. I knew that, you know, very young. And then it just seemed like advertising and I think more than anything, it came down to the longer that I was in the industry, the more thought process and concepts I put behind the work that I did. And then the more it became appealing to me to really have all of my work ladder up to this higher thought or this bigger thought. And then naturally that just kind of segued into advertising because a lot of it is <laughs> a lot of advertising is selling crap that you don't need and that you <laughs> and you know, and that and that you don't necessarily need for yourself. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have a thought process of, hey, how can I persuade someone's behavior to purchase this thing that they don't need, you know? And so it kind of naturally led me into that process. But as far as opportunities, I mean, it really depends on the agency, but I would say design and designers are constantly needed in advertising. And the term design, I like to think of it as it used to be where in the late 90s or even in the 90s, design was very linear. It was like if you were a designer, you were print. (laughs) And if you were a web designer, you were a multimedia designer kind of thing. And then if you were video or editing, then you were putting kind of like the animation box kind of. But I've seen where that term has changed so much, obviously, because people's behavior has changed quite a bit over the last decade or two. And so the opportunities for designers are much more varied in general, because if you're an agency and like, you know, as an art director, you come up with an idea for a TV spot, but then it also has to have a digital component or social media component. You need a designer to be able to execute that. You need a web designer to be able to create like a a digital presence, for instance. So I think there are a lot of opportunities for designers in advertising. So because design is sort of branched out in concept and in scope like that, is it better if designers sort of come to the table with a lot of skills or is it better to be kind of a specialist? I think it depends on the designer themselves. You obviously have some designers are great at probably just executing or great at making things look great. And I think that is a acquired skill in itself because not everybody knows how to do a composition, especially if you're not a designer. And so I think that that is a very important part. But I also think that design and the discipline of design itself, it usually has to do one or two things. It has to serve a purpose either for yourself, whether it be freedom of expression or for an, its intended audience. And so if it's for an intended audience, then a lot of times it has to have a deeper meaning or deeper purpose behind it. It's for a specific audience, for a specific set of group of people at a specific time for a specific reason. And so that requires a little bit more thought. But I think that we have so many more opportunities as designers now than we've ever had before just because of the mediums in which design is needed, whether it be print, whether it be environmental design, whether it be web design, whether it be product design, whether it be social media, print, I mean, you name it, broadcast design. I mean, it's just so many different avenues now than what it used to be. And because of that, I think it makes advertising agencies a little bit more difficult to come up with that end result for our clients just because there are so many different 
ways that you have to put a message out there, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many different titles now. I remember when it was just Webmaster. Yeah. And now it's it's you can be an interaction designer or, of course, UX or UI or there's all these different types of, of designations now. Product designer. You know, at first when I thought product designer, I thought that meant you were actually designing like physical products. But it feels like product designer is the new web designer in a way. I'm not really sure because the titles change so much. And, and I feel like a lot of that comes mostly from bigger companies and it just gets pushed out down to agencies and to smaller companies and things like that. Yeah, yeah, because you actually are even seeing now where a lot of corporate environments, especially those that have products, for instance, like Dell, they used to be where the products were created alongside with engineers and just developers and then scientists. But now you have designers that are coming to the table and being a part of that conversation. They're actually influencing the product and the design of the product. I mean, Apple is another great example. You've got engineers, software engineers, you've got scientists alongside actually designers that are actually influencing the look of the product and making sure that it looks beautiful and attractive. And you see that happening. You have Dell, you've got Apple, you've got IBM is another example that does a fantastic job of all the disciplines of design and how it influences the software that IBM actually pushes out throughout their platforms. So walk me through a typical day. What's a typical day like for Roy? The good thing is that sometimes there are no typical days because <laughs> 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 it just depends on exactly what's happening. But usually if we've got a lot going on, I'll come in and check my calendar and we may have a briefing on a new product or new project for a client. And uh, you know, you'll sit through the creative briefing and figure out what the objectives are for the assignment, what the goal is. And then I'll usually break away with my copywriting partner and we'll just get together and throw a bunch of ideas together. Sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't. And that happens sometimes over the course of days. And then I may have to review concepts of work from another project that we have going on. It seems like in the earlier stages of projects, there are a lot of meetings and briefings. And then the mm. concepting phase is very open in terms of the time that you have to, you know, actually create and craft an idea. And from there, it's, you know, you got a deadline and you got a check-in point where you got to check in with your creative director and, and see what are your first thoughts that they're not well crafted at that point. They're just, hey, I was kind of thinking about what if we have this guy that's doing this or whatever. And from there, it's just a, a process of refinement. Then as it gets closer towards the deadline, then you really actually started putting, I guess, I would say flesh on the skeleton. Like, what does it look like? How, what's the medium? How does it all ladder back up to what the objectives are? And that's really pretty much it. So I want to talk about the importance of that kind of briefing and brainstorming part, because I feel like sometimes for clients, they don't really understand why that is so important. They may just want to launch right into whatever the finished product is going to look like. Talk to me about why that concept, that first part of just sort of fleshing it out is so important. It's extremely important because you have to know what you're going to say. It's always good to know in the forefront, like what the end result is supposed to look like, what a success is like for the client. And the more time that you can have as a designer to really think about the direction of where you're supposed to go and actually conceptualize it is important. And I agree, a lot of times the clients want to rush into the execution 
but in the way of jumping to an execution without actually thinking about the full process behind it, that's when things go awry a lot of times. Or you end up missing out on a huge opportunity to reach maybe a different segment of audiences with the work that you're doing. And the conceptual phase and the concept phase in the beginning is very, very critical for the designer because a lot of times it takes us a while to get into a certain mindset. So for me, so like when I'm concepting, there are certain types of music that actually inspire me. One is I listen to movie soundtracks. When I actually okay. have a, a hardcore deadline that I have to meet, I'll put on very intense music. <laughs> every designer is different. Every person is different. But I'll usually play uh, one of my favorites is the Inception soundtrack uh. just because it's very deep and you can kind of get lost in your thoughts in that process, in that music. And that usually will really kind of open up my mind to just, I'll just start jotting things down. One of the things I also find is interesting is in that process, I'm an art director and so I'm a designer and we usually, we're visual, right? So when I'm actually concepting, I've learned over time that I actually start with words. So I end up writing down words that come to mind that may give me a particular thought or may give me or the words actually may lead to a visual to help me connect exactly what I'm trying to package up, what I'm trying to put together. And so music will inspire me a lot of times. And then there are times and there are days when the ideas are just not hit. And no matter what you come up with, you just hit. Yeah. You're staring at a blank page and it's just not coming. And so in those times, I'll break away from my desk. I'll go for a walk around the block, listen to some music, get out, get some fresh air. Because a lot of times there are things that are in your environment as well that may bring you inspiration. And, you know, everybody has different things. Some people, they like to absorb movies or they like to just surf the web. And there's things that they may come across, an article or something that may have an idea and they write it down. But, yeah, so that's kind of like my process. And I think that that early phase is extremely important and critical. And clients like to rush that. And that's the part of the creative process, I think, that is the most misunderstood because it's not a linear process. It's not right. always linear. And for clients, they want to know, okay, well, I give you this project and then come back to me with three ideas. But that in between, because no one really knows exactly. I mean, there's not much evidence of how that idea, how you get it, but you just right. know that it comes to you. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, you have to create it. You can't just pull it off the shelf. Yeah. How do you communicate that to clients that want to rush that? I think that, one, it, it starts with the trust in the relationship with the client, which is very, very difficult in the very beginning, especially with the new client, developing that trust and that relationship to where they understand, one, that you're, at a, you're a designer and you have a particular level and quality of work that you're used to and that you're not going to settle for anything less and... I think that that comes with that trust and that relationship. Obviously, when they hire you as a designer to do work for them, they're hiring your skills and they're hiring you because of what they've seen and what they know of you and your reputation. So I think that's one part of it is letting a client know up front, hey, this is the kind of work that I am sold to and this is the kind of work that I commit to and let's do business together and this is what I expect. This is what I expect of myself and this is what I expect of you. And then I think it's just having that open communication of, hey, here's our deadline, here's what I think may work. Because sometimes clients say, hey, I need, a, I need a brochure 
in a week and you can say, well, okay, we can come to that, but let's talk about what your business problem is because you may find mm -hmm. out as a designer, and this is you know part of that open communication, you may, in discussion with the client, you may realize, hey, yes, you will need a brochure, but there's something bigger that you need that's bigger than just a brochure right now, or there's something bigger that you need than just a, a website. Maybe you need a brand identity guideline to help establish mm -hmm. that 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 brochure or that website might follow. So yeah, I think that that conversation and that expectation on both parts is extremely critical in the very beginning. Now, Sanders Wingo is an award-winning advertising agency. As I was doing my research, I noticed that you won some awards as well. Mm -hmm. Now, aside from just sheer bragging rights, what are the benefits for winning those kinds of awards? One, I think for me personally, it is a self-validation. Because no matter where you are, I think, in your career as a designer, there are times when you question, you sit back, and you're like, am I doing work that, that I'm proud of? Am I doing work that I am sold on? Am I still a good designer? Do I still have it? Do I still mm -hmm. have what it takes? And so I think that throughout your career as a designer, you will always find and look for ways to have that validation, whether it be work that you feel completely committed to. But I think that innate in all of us as designers we became designers because deep within we have an oath that we feel that it's our job to help bring visual of some sort to the world and basically to leave the world in a better place than how we found it you know and i think that's what we feel as designers our higher mission is internally is that we feel that we have skills or a viewpoint that we can contribute to the world and it could be as simple as a website that helps give a business a presence. It could be signage. It could be some type of political campaign or something that we can help bring perspective to as designers. You know, there's just so many different ways that we could do it. And so awards help us find that validation. But then I also think that awards are also good for you as a designer for when you are going to get clients or when you're going to be hired by an employer because they say, okay, this designer knows his stuff. He has the skills. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to execute a design very, very well. And not only is he admired by his peers who may have given him the award, but I also admire him and I want to hire him for doing work for me too as well. So I think that the awards, they serve a purpose for yourself as a designer, but then also for potential employers or clients as well. Because clients want to work with people who've won awards because they get to brag about it. It's like, oh yeah, we hired Sanders Wingo agency who won these awards because it helps a client feel that they're smart because they picked out someone who's won awards to do the work for them. Yeah, I've judged awards before. Like I've been a judge with the Communication Arts Awards with the, I forget what the other one's called, the W3 Awards or something like that. But they're design-based awards like that. One criticism that I know I hear from people about why they don't enter awards is that you have to pay. Oh, yeah. They would rather that it's free. But I feel like with any kind of award, I mean, I put on an award show for seven plus years. So I, I know yeah. this all too well. There's work that goes into it. There's <laughs> work that goes into it. It's not, I mean, yeah, it would be great to, and actually I did do nominations and things for free. But I mean, just the terms of the, the infrastructure to keep it going. Yeah, you do want to charge for that. I think people wonder if they're just paying for the award or they feel that, oh, if I pay and do this entry fee and I don't win, 
this is just X number of dollars down the drain or something like that. Yeah, that is a common criticism. And, you know, I think that happens with just about any award show. I think you touched on something that's, that's critical. When you're doing an award show, especially those that have been around for a while, there's a certain prestige that comes with it. And the longer standing award shows, sometimes the, the fees tend to be higher. But putting on an award show isn't free. I mean, if you're hiring judges to come out, a lot of times they have to fly out to the award show location or to actually be in one location to do the judging, unless it's solely online judging. But there's fees that are associated with that. There are sometimes fees that are associated with registering that award show with a national organization of some sort that also helps it be validated and be counted as an official award show. So that, mm-hmm. that's also, I think, goes into it. And then for those that actually are fortunate enough to receive an award, you know, there's a cost that's associated with the actual award, the physical award itself, too. And sometimes that isn't cheap either. I mean, sometimes your awards are, they're... They're not. I've priced them. They're not. <laughs> they're not cheap. Yeah. Even the ones that look cheap, they're not They're not. They're not. So, I mean... And, you know, for you and I, if this whole design and advertising thing doesn't work out, then we can definitely go into business and actually creating awards because, <laughs> I mean, there are hundreds of dollars sometimes. Like I was actually looking at the Graphis Award recently because I was trying to get information on how much it costs to acquire like one of the gold or the platinum or the silver award. And like just to get the physical award is like over $300, I believe. And I was thinking like, geez, but then I looked at it. It's like a full solid metal laser cut item. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I get that. (laughs) You're paying for personalization. Oftentimes when you're purchasing those awards, it's not a one-off thing. They have to make dozens. Like you basically have to buy the awards in bulk. Yeah. And so that can sort of cut down on the individual cost, but it's still just have awards lying around that people never claim them or anything like that. And then, of course, if you have to ship the awards... That's another cost. It's a lot. Yeah. Okay, so kind of bringing it back to awards. I mean, one thing that we see with a lot of awards events and things like that is the people that win are, quite frankly, it's not really a multicultural crowd of people that are winning. One recent example, I guess, from like the past six months or so is from the Art Directors Club. The ADC Young Guns released their Young Guns for 2014, and they were all white. There were no people of color. And there was like a brief little sort of dust up about it. It, it. People talked about it. It sort of drifted away for a while. But when you see that in terms of the design media, when you see that in terms of the people that are winning the awards, I feel like that can let other designers like not feel as good because they don't see people that look like them that are at that kind of level. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I think it's important that it be all inclusive. I wonder if, is it because there aren't enough minorities that are entering into the award shows, you know, because when you send in your work, they're not asking for a photo of like, send us a photo of you to see your work. But is it because we're just, as minorities, we're not interested in sending awards or we just, because of what we see in terms of the people who are winning, is that discouraging for us to send our work in? Because there's tons and tons of talented minority designers all across the country and and international as well. But you don't see them represented in the photos of the winners. And and I often wonder, is it because we're not entering? And are we not entering because we're discouraged? Or is it just not on our radar altogether to enter our work? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, you don't even see it in the judging jury, to be quite honest. Yeah. You don't even see that. I mean, another recent example is the Net Awards. Mm -hmm. 
the Net Awards are run out of the UK from Net Magazine. And they sort of had a bit of a dust up last year when someone had brought to mention that most of the nominees were white men. And then they have done the nomination process for this year. And then they released the jury, the 100 judges. Out of the 100 judges, 90% are white. Maybe about 7 or 8% multicultural, 1% black. They got one black designer. Which, I don't know, you know, when you see that, it's like, oh, well, do I even want to submit my work? Is my work going to be able to speak for itself? Not saying that the work of a black designer has to be judged by another black designer. Right. But I do wonder if that there is that level of discouragement just from, like, seeing that I don't even know if I'm going to be judged fairly or... It's tricky. It's very tricky. I think about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think that overall in the creative field, the topic of diversity, it is happening more in terms of the discussion than it has ever been, I believe. But I think that as the term designer becomes more vague and now that it is, it opens up the door for more minorities, I think, who have varying skill sets to come into the field and hopefully eventually to rise up in the ranks, you know, rise up in the ranks of Google, rise up in the ranks of Facebook, which just reminds me, I mean, I think I read something recently that Mark Zuckerberg decided or made a statement that it was his mission over the next few years that he wanted to increase the diversity numbers for Facebook. You know, I think that it helps to have discussions like that where say, hey, guys, we, one, we recognize that we have a diversity problem. We admit that. Yeah. And then two, we want to do something about it and then actually put a, a timeline to us. OK, over the next two years, we're going to seek out ways to increase diversity numbers by 20 percent or 30 percent or whatever it is. Actually put some numbers behind it and then actively work towards that. Yeah, I know that that sort of thing has to be a continued effort. I know when those diversity numbers first started coming out last year. Everyone's like, oh, it's so bad. It's, you know, single digit percentages. And that's not going to change from one year to the next. That has to be a continued, sustained effort. It, it can't just be something you fix in one year. And I know that Facebook is trying to do some stuff. I talked with a few people that work at Facebook when I was in Austin for South by Southwest. And I get the sense that they are, I think they're still kind of dipping their toe in the water mm-hmm. as to whether or not they are really trying to make it happen. There is still some trepidation Mm -hmm. i feel for them i don't know if it's they don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing but i think that's par for the course you're not gonna i don't think that anyone that's trying to make this happen is going to knock it out of the park at every single step yeah i agree like you you have to learn if i mean you especially if you're talking about something that could drastically change your workplace culture as well mistakes will happen and you just have to deal with it and keep it moving and try to make it better. Yeah, and let's be honest. I mean, dealing with the topic of diversity, it makes people uncomfortable, right? So, like, if you've got a boardroom where, you know, on the the board of directors where, you know, there's 50 and 60-year-old men who are white, you know, on the board, and then one of the guys brings up the discussion and says, hey, I think we should introduce a African-American to our board. That kind of is a little bit, it may be a little unsettling for to have that discussion in that environment. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier to have the discussion and to like talk about it, but it's even more difficult to actually actively actively do it and actively go after it. But then I think the other thing that's important that we have to address is educational opportunities for minorities too. So if you've mm-hmm. got 
in certain areas or certain regions where programs that may be on some HBCU campuses, they may not have a technology-focused program that may gear towards UX designers or UI designers or web designers or graphic designers or broadcast animators or something like that. So if they don't have the programs and the resources that are on that campus, then what access do those students have to be able to yeah. slip into those fields? I think that for opportunities that you will find for someone that will eventually give them a career path to work at a Google, to work at a, a Microsoft or to work at a IBM or work at an Apple campus or something, the education that they may need that will lead them to that, that ultimately like a dream job, will they have access to that type of education and programs to give them the skills that would actually set them on that course? And so I think that that education in general is something that I think as a country we have to look at. But then also we definitely have to look at the educational opportunities for minorities, you know, blacks, Hispanics, and others as well. They may not afford to be able to go to a four-year education. And if they go to a community college, they may be fortunate enough to go to a community college in an area where they have software development courses that they could take. It's a good point. Actually, what you just talked about describes me, my first year in undergrad, completely. When I came into Morehouse, I wanted to do web design. I had been doing web design, just kind of playing around on GeoCities and stuff in high school. And when I got to Morehouse and I was a computer science, computer engineering major, and I didn't know if the web really worked with that, but I was curious to see. That's why I kind of went into that major. And I remember just asking my advisor, telling him that I wanted to do web design. I wanted to learn about, I think CSS was kind of just coming out at the time. It was like 99. Mm -hmm. CSS was kind of just starting to make its, its debut. And he just kind of very frankly told me, like, we don't do that here. If you're interested in something like that, you either need to change your major or change to a different school. And because Morehouse doesn't really, I mean, they have an art department that's kind of in conjunction with Spelman, but it's more fine arts, mm -hmm. painting, sculpting. It's not anything digital. Actually, even at the time, the computer science department was not what it is now. I was there when they were sort of revamping and they actually built a whole building for the computer science department. But I ended up switching my major to math. Mm. But even in that time, I was looking at like, well, what if I went to the Art Institute of Atlanta hmm. and I could major in this, how much would it cost? But then my scholarship wouldn't have transferred over. So I ended up staying at Morehouse, majoring in math. And don't get me wrong. Math is great. I love math. I'm a math nerd. But I wonder if it would have been different if I had that kind of educational opportunity set up where maybe it could have pushed me into more of a design focused area. Like I still came back to design eventually. Like I got my <laughs> undergrad, got my graduate degree, and now I'm a designer now. But I sort of took this roundabout way to it where when we look at designers, we look at quote unquote career designers, I'll, I'll put it that way. The ones that may have went to an art school and then they end up working for an agency and they end up winning these awards, you know, it puts them on that, that trajectory towards being like one of the like top name designers. Mm -hmm. And if you don't follow that particular path, then what's out there for you? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Or even just like if you're a designer and you happen to have the opportunity to go to, you know, a well-known four-year institution and you get an internship. Like, for instance, you know, we're in Austin. And so I run into students all the time who graduate from UT here, University of Texas in Austin, and who graduate from the, the creative sequence program 
they get a four-year degree in design or advertising or marketing. They get an internship at an agency here. And before you know it, they're off on the path. And they're, they've worked their way up to one of some of the biggest name agencies. And not everybody has that experience. And it's interesting because my background is so in high school, and, and I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas. And, and in high school, I think in my 11th grade year, I took a commercial art and computer graphics class at a Votech school. And it was like half of a day. And that was really what exposed me to design. Now, previously, I always focused on fine arts, but it wasn't until in that course that it kind of clicked for me. And what really set my career path was someone from the Art Institute of Atlanta came in that class. Really? To, yeah, to show a portfolio <laughs> of graduate students and some of the work that they did and some of the programs. And I looked at that, I was like, that's the school I'm going to go to. So I actually applied to the Art Institute of Atlanta got accepted. And it was before they built the new campus. They were just about finished building it, but it was in transition. This was in 1998, 99, somewhere around there. Okay. And I got accepted to the Art Institute of Atlanta, was going to get a bachelor's in graphic design, and it was too expensive. Didn't have the money to do it. And so instead, I ended up transferring to Dallas and went to the Art Institute of Dallas, and I had to get an associate's instead. Because the opportunity for my parents to afford with student loans and stuff and parent loans for me to afford a four-year education in Atlanta with no relatives, that just further away, the opportunity wasn't there. And so that set me on the course. So I went to Art Institute of Dallas, graduated in 2001. And and then I had, a I guess, a career epiphany where right before I was to graduate, with and do my portfolio showing September 11th happened like a week before two weeks before Uh and nobody was hiring and everybody was pulling back on budgets because September 11th had just happened and so all of us designers who were in that particular graduating graduating class like no one could get a job (laughs) yeah and so I ended up taking a uh, a third shift production job working for um, Auto Trader magazine and I would (laughs) <laughs> just worked the third shift and I did that for almost a year until I could get a better opportunity. But so it's interesting because our paths were, were almost kind of similar on the Art Institute track. But yeah, but I think that, you know, the Art Institute provided opportunities for kids who may not have had the funds or the resources to go to a four year institution to get a design program or go to a very prestigious design college or design school to provide that opportunity. And so, um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to, to go through that program and and then uh, kind of weave my way into the industry somehow. But it sounds like your parents kind of supported what you were doing, though. That's another huge part of it. Yeah. I know for me, my mom was not having it. She wanted me to major in something that would make money, that would be stable. Because initially, when I went to Morehouse, I wanted to be an English major because I was always writing and stuff. She wasn't gung-ho on that. She kind of wanted me to do something that would make money. She's like, you're good at math. Why don't you be an engineer? And I was like, okay, you know, maybe there's a way to kind of bridge the two. And I do web design. I can do some coding. I can do some writing. And then from there, just sort of finding my way into doing math, which I like math. I mean, I couldn't be a math teacher, but I've got a degree in math, which has afforded some, it's afforded, I guess, a certain thought process in terms of how I approach things Mm -hmm. logically and stuff like that, which is not a bad thing, but I didn't set out to be a career mathematician. So I didn't want to go to graduate school and get a PhD and be, you know, doing 
papers and dissertations. I did not. I mean, I like math. I don't love math. Yeah. But I don't. I don't love it like that. But <laughs> I like I like math enough where I felt like I could have done done pretty well with it. It's funny you mentioned Auto Trader because I used to work for Auto Trader as oh, well. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, I worked not in the design department. I worked in customer service because. So you mentioned September 11th. I was a junior in college when September 11th happened. And I was actually on the track to working for NASA. Oh. I'd done two NASA internships at two different facilities, and I was like, this is what it's going to be. I'm going to work for NASA. I had already picked out where I wanted to go. It was going to be great. And then September 11th happened, and they pulled back the funding on my program. So any sort of like job openings or things that were promised for us when we were freshmen mm-hmm. were gone because that money ended up going to like Homeland Security. Oh, wow. Which means I had to like scramble and try to find something because this junior year, I have no career prospects lined up. I'm graduating in about a year or so. I've got nothing. I had to sort of worm my way into the computer science department, getting good with the, the staff there, get on a few interview books. So I interviewed with like RealPlayer and Microsoft and things like that. And none of those actually worked out because I wasn't a computer science major. I was a math major. They were only interested in comp side major. So for a long time after I got my degree, I was doing customer service because nobody wanted to hire a math major. What, what were you going to do? Just add stuff without a calculator? <laughs> no one could really find what I could do with a math degree. And so I sold tickets at the symphony. I was a customer service agent at Auto Trader. I didn't get my first design job until two and a half years outside of college. Mm which is a long time to kind yeah. of just suffer in the trenches to feel like, oh my God, I can't believe that. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I, I want to do, and I was still doing freelance design and stuff on the side. It wasn't what it is now, like what I'm doing now where I'm working with clients and stuff. It was still very much like a side hustle yeah. kind of thing. Wow, that's interesting, man. That's interesting because, yeah, when I was working at Auto Trader, like I said, it was a third shift job and it was just doing just really, it was so methodical in terms of the process. Like we would get pictures I would scan them actually on a physical scanner, scan them all into a system, batch them, and then we would have the layout of the pages. And then we would just get like physical things that were mailed in of people like, hey, I want to sell my 1992 Cutlass, you know. And And then we would take that and we would type it all into the layout of the design. And this was in in Cork Express. We would type it in. And then we had so many pages to do as a production team for that shift for the night. And it was cool at first because I was like, hey, I'm getting to do some design. And then that quickly wore off. And I was like, oh, there's no creativity. <laughs> you know? But That's how I was when I worked at, at AT&T. It was very much the same thing. We would pick up these packets of sites that we had to design. And there were pictures we had to scan. And, I mean, you're sitting down and you're making a five to nine page site from conception, like from picking up the packet to finished site in maybe about four hours. Mm. Like, I mean, it's pretty much like an assembly line. It's like the McDonald's, the McDonaldization of design. <laughs> yeah. There's no soul in it. It's very much like I, at the time I had created my own framework so I could easily make and create and shift the layouts. Cause I mean, I had to turn out maybe two of those sites a day and it was just, you know, it wasn't fun. It was just work. Yeah. It, it didn't feel like you could really put your own like creative spin on it. Cause they limited so many things that. You could do like you couldn't even use JavaScript. Like it was, they delivered it <laughs> so much stuff that it just, ugh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I definitely did have the support of my parents in going to art school, and and my dad was a really really great artist, fine artist, 
And he was really kind of my inspiration and reason for becoming a designer because when I was young, I started off like drawing, you know, just little small things around the house. And and then uh, I went through a phase, especially in the 90s, I went through a phase where I was drawing like low rider cars and all that. And <laughs> and he would just like critique my art. He's like, well, you know, the wheels should be like this. And I think the thing that really propelled me the most was that I realized that my dad only has a high school education and he had a family. He had us when he was really young. And I remember as a kid, him making paintings and on the weekends, sometimes he would do oil paintings and he would go out and we would try to sell them. He would set up outside of a, like in the parking lot where there were other artists and people selling crafts and stuff. And he would try to sell his art. And I realized that he never had the opportunity. He didn't have the same opportunities to pursue it as a career field. So for me, it was almost like, okay, dad, pass the torch. I'm going to take mm-hmm. it even further. And so uh, even now, you know, when I talk to him and he's asking me what I'm working on, what I'm doing, he's always like, oh, I'm so proud of you. You know, you're just, you're a great designer and you, you're doing, you're living my dream kind of thing. So that really kind of gives me that extra motivation to kind of feel like um, I'm also doing something that my dad wanted to do and that he couldn't do. That's awesome, man. Was he kind of like your first art mentor or design mentor? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, from a very young age. And then I think the next art mentor I had was in about seventh grade. I had an art teacher that was a really, really great teacher. She was kind of a um, a spitfire type personality. She drove a Jeep Wrangler and was just very carefree and charismatic personality. <laughs> right. And she noticed that in the class and because it was required to take art. She knows that I was spending a lot more time on art and I was, you know, working on composition and stuff. And she kind of took me under her wing and, and talked to me about, you know, different things. And, and she really was the one that said, you, you can be an artist as a career. This is something that you can pursue. You're really good at it. So speaking of school, what's something important that you know now as a art director at an agency? What's something important that you know now that you never learned in school? Being able to talk through and describe and just articulate your work is extremely important. I think for sometimes most of us as artists, we're very, we're very shy or timid or not even shy or timid, but we're just, we're not as reserved. Yeah. We're a lot more reserved and mostly, and that's what makes us great artists is because we're kind of stuck in our feelings and in our thoughts a lot of times. And we're different. We process things different. We process information differently than most people. And so we kind of protect ourselves a little bit more as well. But I think the more that we can learn how to interact and actually talk through our work, I think that that just really catapults your career even further. And that actually was something that took me a lot of practice outside of school because I got to a point when I actually began being a working professional where I was the only black guy in the room. <laughs> yeah. Know? And I had to really, at one, I had to embrace that and get beyond that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then I also had to realize, hey, okay, I'm the only minority in this room and I am being asked to present my work. How can I articulate what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling in a way to where I can feel confident and they can understand me? And it got to a point where I was able to really be able to judge my audience and see exactly like, what they're feeling and how to present, you know, how to do that. They don't really, I don't think you really learn that as much in like, how do you sell your work? You know, whether it be sell it to your art director or how do you sell it to your creative director or how do you sell it to your 
whoever is above you, how do you sell and articulate your work and articulate exactly what you were thinking, how you were thinking and how you came to that, and then what the end result is that they're looking at. I think that's extremely important. I absolutely agree. And that's whether you're an agency designer or you're a freelancer. It's always just important to be able to communicate your ideas and communicate your value. That's something I know that I see a lot of freelancers struggle with. For example, there are things that always, these discussions that come up about people that want maybe a $500 website or a $5 logo that'll approach a designer with something like that. And the designer might just scoff and say, oh, well, that's a foolish argument. You know, you can pay $500 for this or you could pay me $5,000 and I can transform your business. Like, how? Like, <laughs> like, what's the value? Like, that's a big jump. Like, how are you able to do that? Communicating why what you're doing is important, what your process is, things like that. Absolutely. What do you have sort of coming up? What are your plans for the summer? Oh, let me see. What are I doing? Well, I got. We're gonna be traveling just a little bit for work, and we've got some things. We've got some things in in the works here. But I'm gonna be doing some more portfolio reviews and reaching out. And one of the things that um, I'm also getting involved in is uh, E4 Youth, which is a minority program here in Austin, Texas, with headed up by Carl Settles. And E4 Youth is actually a program where they're working with high school students to help them get prepared in the creative arts. So it's going to be, they've been doing anything from like resume, how to build a resume, how to interview for a job, how to go. And they're doing like shadow the pros for a day where you get to, where a student will actually connect with a working professional in an agency or a design firm and actually just sit with them for a day, see what they do. Just really kind of that early exposure I think is important because again, I'm a kid from, who's a byproduct of that. You know, I was in high school, I took this commercial art computer graphics class which sounds very like <laughs> sounds very ancient like commercial graphics like what is that <laughs> <laughs> but I, and I think at that time I think in that class we learned how to do Adobe Illustrator and I think it was like Adobe Illustrator 3 or 4 at the time but it was that early exposure that it piqued my interest like oh that's what I want to do so I think programs like that are really good so getting involved with that and I've done a couple mentors and just really just trying to give back, I think, and, and offer as much advice as I can. Because again, I think for me, it took me a while to really kind of, I think, work my way into the industry. When I was, when we came out of the Art Institute of Dallas, again, the designer term was so linear. I didn't learn web design. We had one web design course and it was for HTML4. And <laughs> well, we had to hard code a website. It was like a five-page website. We had to hard code it with HTML4. But that was because I wasn't on the books as a multimedia designer. I was on the books as a graphic designer, but we had to take that one course. And really that one course, and I think I passed it with like a, a D or a C too on top of that. But so then the industry changed and I started as I was applying for jobs, I saw that people were saying in web designer was included in like the description. I was like, what is this all about? So CSS came along. I had to teach myself CSS. I still held to some of the foundations of HTML4 and then like kind of brushed up on HTML5 as that started happening. And so now, you know, I could design and code a website if I need to now. And so just having those experiences with students that are coming out now, it's like, hey, dude, this is what you need to look out for. This is how if you're going for a job, this is what you need to have on your resume. Here's how to talk to creative directors. You need to have a personal website. You know, just 
offering up advice because there are a lot of things that I had to learn and that I learned the hard way along the way too after getting so many doors slammed and going on job interviews and thinking like, oh man, this is great. And then not hearing back and like, what was up? What's yeah. going on? And then having to come to the realization like, you know what? My work isn't that great. I need to work on my book. <laughs> so just trying to offer advice. Where do you see yourself in the next few years? I think I'd like to still be in advertising. Maybe hopefully I'll be taking on a more senior role here at the agency and continuing to shape the work that we do for our clients here at Sanders Wingo. I think that one of the things that I have really enjoyed about being here at Sanders Wingo is and being in and working into broadcast is that I have the, the traditional discipline of graphic designer as a background. And then as I work more on the ideas of design and what does that mean? What's the idea or the concept? And working on television is extremely exciting because it's a new form. Like it's a difference in coming up with an idea for a TV script and a long partnership with your writer and then actually being on set and actually casting actors who are going to actually act out your idea, act out your commercial and, and seeing the final product and meeting producers and meeting cameramen and learning about cameras, learning about lighting and all these other things. All of this is still part of design because it's communicating a message at the end of the day. And then actually seeing your work on TV, like, hey, that's pretty cool. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then knowing and learning the behind the scenes stuff that it takes sometimes to pull off a commercial. Like we, we were on the set of a commercial once and we had to shoot a scene that looked like it was a, a night scene. And we were shooting in this house in L.A. It was in the middle of the day. And I was thinking like, man, how are they going to do this? And like seeing these guys with these giant like black tarps that covered like this whole entire side of the house. That literally, it looked like that it was nighttime, and just seeing how they did that, and seeing how they used mm -hmm. different lights to to create the the mood and the atmosphere of like this dusk type setting, it was like it's like wow, that's amazing <laughs> that they can do that. It's all a learning process, and it's it's incredibly fun. And that's cool that as an art director, you really get to to like you say, apply design in a bunch of these different things. You're not just sitting behind a computer or just like barking the junior designers about do this do this do this it's really more of a holistic overall approach to the work yeah yeah absolutely it's from the thought process from the thought process to the sketch in your book to the words that your copywriter will come up with to presenting it in front of your creative director to having it presented to the client to then going through the legality process you know when you're dealing with sag and you're dealing with actors and actresses and and then to looking at directors' reels and their work and then meeting with the directors and, and then being on set, doing locations. I mean, it's just so many different things that go into it. And being there from start to finish is extremely exciting. You're like, wow, this is it's really powerful when you get to be able to do that. Well, just to kind of wrap up our conversation here, where can people follow you and find out more about you online? You can go to my website, www.royMilton.me is my uh, personal website. You can connect with me on LinkedIn as well. I'm on LinkedIn. That's where I'm at. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Roy Milton, thank you again so much for, for coming on the show, for really talking about the work that you do, talking about why diversity is important, and also just sort of illustrating how much design really means to you, how much it shaped your life. I think people are going to get a lot out of this conversation. So thank you again so much. I really do appreciate oh, thank it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. 
And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Roy Milton and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Roy and his work. The links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our wonderful sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it super simple. They've got great reporting and autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contract and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover, and you can save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code GRADUATION at checkout. And of course, lastly, there's Creative Market. There's a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com, pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday, and also don't forget to check out the May Big Bundle and our 20% discount code. This episode was edited by R.J. Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, This Is My Tape For You, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. It helps us bump up in the iTunes rankings. And it lets more people know that this is a design podcast that talks to black designers because no other design podcast out there is talking to black designers like Revision Path is. So show your support, leave a review. I'll read your review here on the show. Let them know what's up. Oh, and one more thing. Don't forget this Friday, May 22nd, 7 p.m., Park Bar. I want to see you there. If you're in Atlanta, I want to see you there. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and let us know. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level to show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.